Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and today is going to be a throwback podcast to an interview that a buddy of mine, Nika Spalding, and I did with Philip Yancey a few years ago. Philip is the author of What's So Amazing About Grace and Soul Survivor and Disappointment with God and a whole bunch of other books. But today we're going to talk about his book that was really influential to me as a young adult, The Jesus I Never Knew. So we're going to talk about our favorite subject today, Jesus. Here you go. Today, we have a special treat. When I was 21 years old in college, I took a biblical backgrounds and life of Christ class. Um, I was a biblical studies major at my university, and uh, a friend of mine, one actually one of my accountability partners, bought me the book, The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And uh, I read through that, and man, the, the Lord used that in my life in a really powerful way to just whet an appetite that really has only gotten stronger over the years for the historical Jesus, for understanding Jesus in his context, to know him as accurately as we can. And then obviously... And for Philip Yancey books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I did. Yeah, I've read uh, quite a few of of his books, but we're privileged today to have Philip Yancey on the call with us. So Philip is a a, uh, obviously a best-selling author and a speaker and uh, is a new friend. So, Philip, welcome. Thank you very much. Look forward to it, guys. I think we're just going to launch off, one, by recommending The Jesus I Never Knew. If you haven't read this book, the thing I tell people about it is that if reading on the life of Jesus is something that you've never launched into, then this is a great introductory book to do that. So, the great thing about Philip's writing style is it's very personal. It's inter- it's, it's interactive. Um, you feel like when you read his his books that you're you're really interacting with a friend, you know. And so I uh, would encourage you to pick that up. But Philip, why don't you and, and you actually say and you tell some of your story in some of your books. But why don't you take a few minutes now and just help us understand why did you write a book like this? How did your image of Jesus form over the years and what was the context that that came out of? Sure, and I thank you for that introduction. I, I'm a journalist, and what we journalists do is we take complex topics that we really don't know anything about, and we, <laughs> and we, represent, we represent the reader by walking them through and, yeah. and coming to terms with them. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not experts. We're generalists. Mm-hmm. And um, ha- However, if there's one area I was an expert in, it was, it was the Bible growing up. I was in one of these old-fashioned, kind of fundamentalist, angry, legalistic, racist churches in the South. I hope there aren't too many of them left like that. But uh, just to put us on the map, uh, you may have heard of Bob Jones University. We were just to the right of Bob Jones University. Okay. (laughs) And and we thought thought Southern Baptists were the liberals, you know. So so as I thought about, even in this morning preparation, knowing we're going to be talking about this, I thought, I came away with a pretty clean image of Jesus because my church was basically an Old Testament church. They liked the God of judgment and ferocity and violence, and and that's why we we heard it was kind of a fear-based religion. And Jesus, we didn't. The church really didn't know what to do with. Uh, the phrase I used in in the book was that. He came across as something like Mr. Rogers with a beard. You know? <laughs> now, boys and girls, let's gather around. You know? But <laughs> we didn't take him that seriously um, because he didn't he didn't fit that uh, that mold of uh, this control oriented, fear based religion that shaped us. So, 
as a journalist and as a as a personal pilgrim, my writing has been a way of going back and reclaiming what is worth reclaiming. And mm-hmm. I, I likened it to picking picking up stones, the stones that I was given, scrubbing them off and finding out what's, what was the truth here. Mm-hmm. And so that title, The Jesus I Never Knew, is accurate because I didn't know this Jesus. And at a certain point in my faith, when I had made a commitment, and I realized that church was not absolute truth, there were other ways of looking at the gospel, is actually good news. I wanted to know Jesus. I wanted to know what he was like. So I started that quest, and the book resulted from that. Yeah. Love that. I, I think, yeah, I think this concept of, of the image of Jesus is so critical because I, I think sometimes, sadly, you might get you might get 10 believers in a room and ask them, what's Jesus like? And if, you might get 10 different answers. And so, Nate, why don't I just kick it over to you and talk about just this concept of imaging Jesus. You're, you're writing your doctoral paper on it, so I assume that means you know something about it. Well, so, no, yeah. that means that means I... Education is learning what you don't know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, the more you dive into this, the more you realize how much you need to learn. But I do think uh, that's why I laughed, so, laughed with you, uh, Philip, because I remember in Vacation Bible, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Um, was he, was, he was liberal. Oh, one of those liberals. Yeah, one, of those, okay. one of those liberals you were yeah. scoffing at. Yeah. Um, but but uh, I remember in like Vacation Bible School as a kid, to me, it was like felt board Jesus. You know, mm. it was like the mm-hmm. they would put the images of Jesus and, the you know, that he was nor- typically he was holding like a sheep and like petting it or, you know, what, what, you know, what in the world. Right. Sure. And his disciples that are around him and, and more often than not, the felt board thing as you're a kid, it was almost like in my mind, I would time to see how long it would take the felt board Jesus to like flop off the board, you know? (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Wasn't in the budget. Yeah. And then a church, uh, a few years ago, a church did a series of videos on Jesus that kind of captured what I think a lot of people think about when they think about Jesus. And it was definitely a parody of Jesus mm. goes around his disciples and I saw you smoking, you know, and I can't, yeah, right. I can't say what you did because, well, I'm Jesus, you know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, but that's the way that um, I think that's the way that, that a lot of people think about him. And so when, when you think about imaging Jesus, you have this idea that if you're a linebacker, like I played football, you know, and that was kind of my image of Jesus for a while. Like, Hey, if Jesus is going to play football, he's going to he's going to knock everybody on their butt, you know, kind of that. <laughs> and or if Jesus uh, played basketball, yeah. or if he if he's an, an artist, artist, or, or yeah, if, right, if uh, right. you know he played the cello, he then, tends to just um, look like us. He totally does, yeah. yeah. And that's that I think is the is the part of it when we image Jesus that that is so dangerous for us because we end up um, shaping this idea of Jesus in our minds that's just not true to the historical Jesus. Yeah. And, and so yeah. um, how, how have you seen that in your life? And then what are some of those common ways that, that uh, you see people get it wrong? One of the reasons I think people do get it wrong is that, is that Jesus speaks differently to different audiences. There was this phrase floating around a few years ago called comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And there's something very true about that phrase. If you just read through the Gospels, if a person is hurting, a widow's just lost her son, mm-hmm. even a Roman soldier whose servant is ill, you know, anybody who's hurting, a person with leprosy, a person whose legs don't work, you'll never find anybody more compassionate, more understanding, and with the supernatural abilities to solve that problem. You know? yeah. so, so there's something about that compassionate Jesus, which is really true. On the other hand, 
if he's dealing with hypocrites mm-hmm. or oppressors, you're never going to find anybody fiercer. I, just the other day, I was reading Matthew 23, where he unloads against <laughs> the Pharisees. Yeah. And, I mean, it is you're a bunch of snakes. You're a whitewashed gravestone. You know, he just... He just lets them have it. Yeah. And, of course, these are the, the pious people of his day. This is the religious establishment. But there's that aspect of Jesus where he speaks to the, to the needy with what they need. Mm-hmm. And he speaks to the people who don't acknowledge the need and exposes that need. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about that in terms of grace, that grace is a free gift of God. You can't do anything to earn it, to deserve it. But to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open. And the people who were deeply needy, sinners, uh, those who needed healing or whatever, had their hands open. It was the religious people who had their hands closed tight like a fist, and grace would just fall to the ground. They'd never receive it. Yeah, yeah. I think that when I think about those types of things, there is that balance of both comfort for the afflicted. I mean, you see this in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor spirit. Right. There's just the kingdom of, of heaven, uh, kingdom of God. And, and yet at the same time, I think that sometimes people can read stuff like that. And, and then if their image of Jesus is something that where they've constructed an image of Jesus that's made in their own image, then there can be a comfort level there for them that can be a false security. Mm. Where someone is, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is kind of okay with what whatever and that's where that other balance the the balancing act there of Jesus who's going you know hey no i'm i'm not okay with that and i know for me and the idols that we hold on to in our life that keep us from transformation like jesus is out to kill those things and so i, I tell people on a pretty consistent basis and i tell myself this um probably less often than i should but is that hey if your image of jesus is not pressing in on you in some way mm-hmm. To, um, to keep you dependent on him um, with the realization that, you know, your, your image of Jesus is not perfect, then, then I think you're, you may be thinking about the wrong Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm. I think, Philip, if I, if I could summarize and make sure, because I think what you're saying is really profound, that so many times people, people describe Jesus and they say, well, he's like this. And I think what I'm hearing you saying is he's like that in certain contexts, that I think it's really important. Um, you know, it's sort of like Jesus flipping over the tables. and so somebody thinks that it's appropriate to do that in front yeah, of a hurting person. Yeah. And you kind of yeah. go, well, hold on. I think, I think what you're saying is the context really, really determines how we see Jesus interacting with yeah. folks. Yeah. That's right. One way I express it, if you could see me, I, I'll give you the visuals here, but he presses the ideals so high. You know, every religion has ideals. This is how you should behave. Jesus comes in and pushes them into the stratosphere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Okay, you don't murder. Do you ever get angry with someone? Okay, you don't commit adultery. Have you ever lusted? You know, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you read these things and you think, oh, man, nobody's going to make that. And, of course, that's his point. point, You don't don't get God's grace by being perfect. I mean, if if you are perfect, I suppose you could, but no one ever is. So, But at the same time, he gives the safety net of grace. And, in fact, all of his parables, so many of his... His contacts with people, they're with the losers. The parables always have the wrong person, the person, the prodigal son, you know, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew. And he shows us that no matter what you've done, either denying him three times like Peter did, or adultery and murder like King David did, you know, no matter what you've done, 
God's grace is deeper still. God can mm-hmm. indeed redeem you and put you back on the path. So it's not something we do. The ideals are unattainable. Yeah. And that's the point. Yeah. But there's another way, and that's the way he came to show us. I love that. So let's let's just take Jesus out of the his historical context, and let's move him 2,000 years forward and plop him here. And in our context would be Dallas, your context, Colorado. But what do you, what do you think are some of the things we would have noticed about Jesus? Like, what are the things that, I, that they probably noticed then, but what are some of those characteristics that you think would really stand out to people? Obviously, grace. I mean, that's what we're hearing you say, but what would you add to that? There's a, a pendulum that goes back and forth throughout Christian history between evangelism and social justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at Jesus, man, he's, he's both and. You know? yeah. There are parts where he says, what does the prophet if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? You know, that's the most important thing. And he's very clear about um, that, that he came to prepare us for a long life, an eternal life. And and in some ways, this world is just a an intro, a preview of that. And then, of course, Jesus does address actual conditions on earth. And we're not here just to, to get through. We are here to thrive. And we are here especially to help the oppressed thrive and the marginalized. We're supposed to reach out to them. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. That's this message over and over. And I think that's... Uh, That's where we go wrong most commonly. I was raised in churches that it was all about getting saved so you can get to heaven. Yeah. I mean, the whole purpose of life is just to grit your teeth and get it over with so you can start heaven, you know? People (laughs) don't pray. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. You're like, well, they need to eat. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. 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 I mean, there's an element of truth there. Yes, it's important. Jesus does say, what does the property begin to but lose your soul? At the other end, though, a lot of his stories are just ordinary activities. Uh, look at the Lord's Prayer. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, may God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, depends on where you are in the country and and what what part of the faith you're connected to, which where that pendulum falls right now. But there are some people who think it's all about social justice. You know, it's just bringing the kingdom by. Well, that doesn't really work. Jesus was also about transforming lives. And there are some people who say, no, it's only about transforming lives. It's this private get saved. Well, no, that's not Jesus either. His whole message was about the kingdom of God. So you've got to have both. I think people often do get, get that wrong. There's a material aspect to it and an immaterial aspect to it. The gospel gets reduced down to God is holy. You're a sinner. Stop being a sinner. Ask Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die, you know. And, and so there, there definitely is an immaterial aspect to our experience that is our will, our soul, our spirit. I think the, uh, the great spirituals, many of which were written by slaves and, and truly oppressed people, mm-hmm. express that if, if you are a slave on a cotton field in Mississippi, mm-hmm. you know your life on this earth is always going to be yep. pretty bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so... It's really important to think about there's going to be justice someday. God's going to give me something uh, to make all of this worthwhile. And these beautiful spirituals that came out of that period. But at the same time, you know, there's the call to the rest of us. We've got to stop this kind of injustice. You know, we've got to get people out of that. So it's important to have both at the same time. Yeah, and that's the material aspect of it is I see this in the Gospels when Jesus is saying, hey, 
even in, in his statement, I am the bread of life, what did he do right before he said that? He feeds he them. Mm-hmm. A bunch of bread. You know, what did he do when, when he goes to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's in, in your book, Phil, you, you talk about uh, signposts, you know, uh, um, the miracles serve as these signs for the person who's paying attention. And that's the miracle of the incarnation is that the God of the universe materially becomes a man. And yes, right, you right. touch him, you interact with him, you, his disciples hugged him and, and you know, ate with him. Ate with him yeah. and, and that's the aspect of, of it that I think when you talk, start talking about the fullness of the kingdom of God, then you have to talk about it in both terms, that there is this immaterial aspect that whereby Jesus is looking past the religious leaders and the Pharisees and Caiaphas even, who's examining him, to the power behind them to defeat his enemy. So that he can, like Romans 8 says, redeem all of creation and raise us from the dead. And so to to have that fuller doctrine of salvation, that he's saving us both immaterially and materially, your your body will will be renewed. Creation will be renewed. The oppressors will go away. Things will be uh, restored. Yeah, it sounds like, and I love what you guys are saying. I mean, it sounds like kind of what I'm taking away from this is anytime somebody tries to put Jesus in a very square, clean, neat box of this is what he always does. I think that you start to venture into maybe more dangerous waters of there's nuance here in terms of if you're the oppressor, hey, there's there's a real act of social justice here that you need to understand. And then if you're the oppressed, like there's a real uh, mercy and grace and comfort that that's coming your way. And I, I think that's some of uh, anytime you hear somebody's image of Jesus and it's so one dimensional, you kind of start going, ah, I think yep. you need to keep reading. What's know? crazy is if you pay attention to history, we're talking about oppressors and, and oppression. The people who are oppressed, when they finally come out from under that oppression, they become oppressors mm. unless mm-hmm. there's an intervention by Christ. Yeah. And and so there's that you're dealing with a human nature. It's it's uh, And I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, let's lift the oppression and also transform the human heart, you know, and, mm-hmm. and those things are not independent of one another. Yeah, you guys are hitting at something. I, I was reading through Matthew, my quiet times at the beginning of the year and uh, I think in every margin on my Bible, I just have one arrow going up, one arrow going down, one arrow going up, one arrow going down. Just this upside down world and right side up kingdom of God, upside down world we live in, or however you want to say it. It just, yeah. um, it's so different than, um, it's challenging. You know, I mean, I felt mm-hmm. as, you're, as you're talking, I mean, there's parts of Jesus, the true Jesus that we encounter in scriptures that it's challenging and comforting mm-hmm. and challenging mm-hmm. and comforting, yeah, and cha- yeah. you know. And mm-hmm. yeah. I love the juxtaposition in uh, Luke chapter 18. Jesus is going through Jericho, and there are two encounters there. One is with a very oppressed person, it's this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and the other was with an oppressor, Zacchaeus. And what we learned about Zacchaeus in Sunday school is that he's a wee little man, right? Very short. (laughs) But but actually, I think the reason he was up in a tree was not to improve his view, because that was the safest place for him. He was an oppressor, (laughs) and he would get lynched, you know? But... uh, Watch how Jesus deals. He always responds with mercy and compassion to the oppressed. And then to the oppressor, he shocks everybody by saying, can I come to your house for dinner? Yeah. He treats him like a human being. He transforms him. And by the end of that dinner, Zacchaeus is taking out loans to pay back all the people he's cheated over the years. I mean, it's a beautiful combination of those two all at once. That's good news. So let's keep Jesus here then in, in the 2017. Uh, and let's just talk about how do you think Jesus, based on your studies and, you know, obviously 
in a relationship with them so you know Jesus, but how would he respond to our current cultural situation? So I, I think this is a great time for us to, um, if you're listening at home, Philip Yancey's written this book on Vanishing Grace, and I think it's a really apropos book for just the political climate that we found ourselves in in this country. And just the premise of the book is just, the title gives it away, and I'll let Philip describe it, but just Philip, what, what would you like to speak to that? Or just how would Jesus in this current cultural situation navigate some of these choppy waters that we find ourselves in? Well, it is a little odd when you immerse yourself in the life of Jesus and then come to contemporary Christianity. Because if you read the the media or looked at the media, you would think evangelicals are a lobby group, a Washington, D.C. lobby group. You know, that's how we're cast. And, and some of them are acting like that. Well, because I'm a journalist, I get to travel around the world. And the, the irony is that in other places like New Zealand, for example, or, or even the U.K., the more conservative you are as a Christian, the more liberal you are politically. Mm-hmm. So in New Zealand, a lot of the, the strong evangelicals are, would call themselves socialists. Didn't Jesus talk about the poor and everything? You come over here and it's the opposite. And then I go back to the Gospels and I see how apolitical Jesus seems to be. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't really comment on um, much going on. He called Herod that fox. Uh, he, he had an opportunity to be with the governor of the entire country, Pilate, and he refused to talk to him. Pilate got irritated because he wouldn't answer his questions. <laughs> and, and he, you know, and uh, Paul, uh, he was a little more political. He would use the legal system to appeal when he was unjustly accused, but neither one of them talked about cleaning up the Roman Empire. That was not even on their, on their agenda, you know, cleaning up the Roman Empire. There were terrible things going on in the Roman Empire. Gladiator games and, and the abandonment of infants where a fourth to a third of all babies were just left. It was a form of birth control. Wild animals, the weather would take them. Jesus didn't talk about that. Paul didn't talk about that. You know, a lot of people, I just read an article the other day that said, uh, the only two issues that count to evangelicals are abortion and homosexuality. Well, that's not true. That's just the media caricature. But it's it's odd that those weren't the issues that Jesus and Paul talked about. Yeah. They just had a different way of presenting the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God, fortunately, can thrive in any kind of environment. When you think about it, Paul could have said, okay, who should be the next uh, emperor of Rome? Should it be uh, Nero or Caligula? You know, <laughs> they didn't really have much to work with back then. And, and so I love this phrase from Martin Luther King Jr. who says, uh, yes, we fight. Some of these issues we have to fight for, but we use different weapons. We use the weapons of grace. Yeah. And, and Jesus, when he was dealing with the Roman oppressors, truly oppressors, he said, well, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his pack one mile, offer to carry it too. Mm-hmm. Love your enemies. Yeah. Pray for those who persecute you. Boy, that is radical stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it is not the way a lot of people judge how Christians should be um, interacting with the political environment around us today. So it's, I mean, it's something that's just challenging to all of us and, and should be challenging. Mm-hmm. Politics is an adversary sport. Boy, do we see that in the news every day, you know, yeah. to try to get the, co- the Republicans and Democrats to agree on anything, even though they <laughs> both know it's a good idea. That's yeah. a they just won't do it. And the gospel is, is a whole different way of approaching society. And Philip, if we're, I think Sylvia is going to interject yeah. here. And also just a reminder, if those of you came a little later in the broadcast that 
you do have a questions tab and uh, would welcome your questions. And I think Sylvia has been interacting with a few. So go ahead, Sylvia. Yes. Yeah. So this one pertains specifically to the current cultural situation we're in. And, and you, when you were talking about social justice, so how does the church respond to the gay identified person who claims the church oppresses them for their identity? Well, I would say uh, they're absolutely right. The church has oppressed gay people over the years. And okay, there's the issue of the moral issue. And fortunately, I am not in charge of a denomination. I don't have to make <laughs> other <laughs> denominations. Yeah. Too, but, you have the privilege uh, of you know, the list. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I'm a freelancer, right? Yeah. But if you talk about the attitude and the way they are treated, mm-hmm. the Bible is very clear there. What do you do with people that you morally disapprove of? You love them. <laughs> you reach out to them. You take care of their needs. I remember uh, as a journalist, I had the privilege when full day to spend with Henry Nowen. Some of you have read Henry Nowen's book. You did uh, feature him in your Soul Survivor book. Yes, that's right. And told about that day, I was up at La Arche with the uh, you know deeply mentally handicapped people. And this was early in the day of the AIDS crisis. It was actually called the gay men's syndrome, because at that point, mm-hmm. the CDC, the Communicable Disease Center, had identified the strange, scary disease, but it only was occurring among gay men, mm. mostly in San Francisco. So the church was being rather hysterical, and it was uh, you know, fear-mongering and saying these terrible things. This is God's judgment, the plague, they deserve it. And Henry Nowen thought, well, that's not right. So he flew out to San Francisco, and there was an open ward full of these men, all of whom were dying. There was no treatment, no cure, whatever. And he would just go up and down the cots and say, I'm a priest, and part of my job is to hear people's stories. We call it confession. Would you like to tell me your story? Mm-hmm. And some would say, get out of here. I don't like the church. you know. But others would tell the stories. And he said again and again, he heard this story of a thirst for love. And he would say, did you find this love that you were thirsting for? They were literally dying, mm-hmm. some of them with a thousand sexual partners, thirsting for love. And he, he said, I came back, and it changed my prayers. Instead of praying, oh, God, that ungodly person, oh, God, that immoral person, I, I would say, God, help me to see that person as a thirsty person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's so critical for those of us. The moral issues are very complicated. The church has done a lousy job, in general, of communicating love to people they morally disapprove of. And that's the one thing we can all agree on. Yeah, it makes me think about the passage where Jesus is con- condemning the Pharisees and he's saying, hey, you guys love to stand and offer these lofty prayers. And you look down over at these other people and, and say, oh, God, I'm grateful I'm not like, you know, so and so over there, which obviously is like, man, I think when we're looking at people in that way, there is a deficiency in our own soul to recognize our own brokenness, our own fallenness, our own need for a savior. We're standing in the place of Jesus, which, man, if you're ever doing that, you're in the wrong spot. But then secondly, it also made me think about the John 7 narrative where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles on the last and greatest day of the feast. And he stands up above the crowd and he, he cries out in a loud voice, like literally says, and he screamed, is anybody thirsty? Mm. If you are, come to me, mm. you know, which is he can, he says that repeatedly in the gospels is, is it's not an invitation to a even to a certain type of life um, and on an ethical or moral sense, it's an invitation to a person. 
And that's the takeaway that I'm in listening to you talk about now and as well. It, where the culture wants to hang out in the in the mess, like there's a way where there, Jesus is moving through that and he's grabbing the person with the love of God and he's saying, hey, the thing you're thirsting for is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Come to him. And, I, and that's such a crucial truth for us to not only to understand, but to walk in as we engage a world that is far from God. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you're a new listener, then thanks for hanging with us. If you've been listening to this for a while, though, and you found it helpful, then we'd appreciate it if you'd take a moment to leave us a rating on iTunes. And if you found this to be really helpful, then please leave us a comment on there. I think that will help us get the word out about this equipping resource. And as always, tell your friends about it, share it on social media. And if you have any questions or would like to suggest a topic that we should cover, then shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. We'll see you next week for part two with Philip Yancey. Peace.